There are over 16.5 million veterans in the United States. Each one of those veterans has a story to share. For many of them, their service never ended. It's something that they relive day on each day for the rest of their lives. My guest today wrote a book about his experience during the Iraq war. It's called The Broken Mirror of Memory, Iraq and Other Tales. So sit back, grab yourself a cup of coffee or whatever it is that you're into. You're listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden on the America Out Loud Network. America Emboldened. Greg, I feel emboldened. You don't know the founding fathers. You don't know what they did. You don't know what they sacrificed. We have lost touch with the principles in the Constitution. Nobody's read the Declaration of Independence. You are voting for socialism, and you got what you voted for. Welcome, bold Americans, to another episode of America Emboldened here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm your host, Greg Bolden. As always, you can go to www.americaoutloud.com, where you can check out all of my colleagues' work, which spans from Dr. Peter McCullough to Dr. Paul Alexander. Uh, we have Paul Engel, the constitutional scholar, Dr. Henry Ely. We got Malcolm Out Loud. You name it. We got content for you, even attorney Tom Renz. Lots of great shows for you to consume. We also have uh, the America Out Loud talk radio network live on the radio 24-7, available on all of your app stores on your mobile devices. Let's get straight into today's show here on this Wednesday. I've been reading this book. It's called The Broken Mirror of Memory, Iraq and Other Tales. And it was written by a gentleman by the name of Joseph Soul, which I believe you prefer to be called Joe, but we're going to get to this in just a quick moment. Uh, but Joe wrote this book about his time spent in Iraq around uh, the late 2000s, a little bit after the uh, invasion of Iraq and uh, wrapped up his tour duty. I believe it was around 2008, but we'll get into all those details today. But what I found was reading this book, it gave me a perspective of uh, a person that was conflicted about what they experienced by going overseas, by signing up for the military in the first place, a person conflicted maybe with Christian values, and then seeing what they saw, a person conflicted with uh, taught racism, a person conflicted with sexuality, a person conflicted with uh, drugs, alcohol, uh, addictions, and just so many other things. And that made it a beautiful story. So I'm happy to welcome Joe Soul onto American Bolden. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. I'm pleasure to have you on the show. All right, Joe, let's let's get straight into it um, before you know anything else. So your story starts off, and I don't want to tell the entire book because I want people to go and I want them to buy this. But the story starts off, and you're a 14 year old watching September 11th in your high school. Um, tell me about the emotions of that day. Uh, tell me about some things maybe you didn't explore in the book that kind of led you down the path to enlist later on into the Army Reserves. Well, we heard it on the radio. There had been a fire on campus a few days um, before, and all the TVs were out. So we heard it on the radio. It was almost a Pearl Harbor moment, you, what you imagine a Pearl Harbor moment to be, hearing news of an attack on America on the radio. And my blood ran cold, just absolutely cold. And I was um, I was angry and I was ready to join the army right then and there, but I was too young. So I waited until 2006. The memories of that day are broken up, but it's still pretty fresh in my mind, the memories that I do have. And now you were living in, in New York state when that happened, right? Upstate. I New was, York. I was okay. living in Honeywell, New York. Yes. And for those that don't know where Honeywell is, can you give me like a, another landmark that people may be familiar with? Uh, Honeyoy is in the Finger Lakes. It is 35 miles south of Rochester, New York. Perfect. Excellent. Yeah, I, actually, I, uh, I've i been in the Finger Lakes before. We'll talk off the show about a couple of those experiences. I wanted to distract from the book, but a beautiful, absolutely beautiful area where you were raised in that area. All right. So uh, you have this. Tell me a little bit about before you were 14 um, about uh, your values, morals and ethics of how you were raised. I was raised 
in a Christian home. My mother was very religious. Uh, she passed when I was 10. And I was raised United Methodist, essentially. I was baptized Catholic and raised United Methodist. And it was, it was, it was the Bible, man. It was straight Christian values, different than how I would interpret them today. Uh, it was a traditionalist Methodist church, a more conservative Methodist church, although we did have a female pastor when I was about 15. But those Christian values still guide me. And they inform me that violence and war is a crime. That's what they inform me. Right. And that comes through in your book really well, right from the get go. Um, some of the stuff that I kind of uh, picked up on was your sense of this moral uh, and ethical dilemma and situation. So, um, and you're also one that you kind of point out in your book, like you didn't see heavy combat in the way that your colleagues in war had seen heavy combat. Uh, you were assigned basically uh, in a position of getting an armory built by the locals, uh, protecting that. That's not that you didn't uh, undergo uh, live mortar attacks. Uh, but I think it's uh, right at the beginning of the book, you start talking about the Patriot Act and violation of civil liberties and what you witnessed uh, as we went into Afghanistan and Iraq, Libya and Syria, and the things that it's used for, and how that spoke volumes about the strength of our institutions. So I, I guess that's, you know, 9-11, let's start here. 9-11 changed my life. Um, one of my classmates was killed in the uh, World Trade Center Tower 2. Uh, upon impact, he was working at Kenner Fitzgerald. I didn't know that until later in the day. A lot of my friends that were living in New York City, I was unable to get in touch with that day. My now brother-in-law walked through New York City covered in suit uh, after the tower collapsed. Uh, and I was right there with you in a lot of ways of like, I want to see the people that did this pay. I remember George Bush standing there with his bullhorn, you know, uh, we today we heard you and soon the world will hear us and being like, yeah, let's go. Um, but I also know that I'm a pacifist and I also know that <laughs> I really didn't believe in going to war against the enemy that I didn't want to go against. And, um, I didn't enlist. Uh, and so there's some people that may look at me and go coward, but I was a man of my principles. And so I, I guess I'm wondering with somebody that has this background of, um, a Christian biblical, uh, and also can spot morality and ethical things just simply in what you were saying about uh, our invasions. Uh, when was the first time when you were enlisting that you started feeling embattled between your beliefs and between what you were be signing up to do? It was, it was right before the deployment to Iraq. And I just, I realized that Violence begets more violence. Hatred begets more hatred. And no matter what, I had to be a part of that now. There was no, there was no option to not be part of that. And I was therefore swept along with the current. I hate to use grandiose language, I suppose, but I was swept, I was swept along with the current of history. There was no way to avoid it. Once I got the orders, I was going. And my work in the ammunition yard, for example, every death in southern, southern and central Iraq, everyone who got rounds, bombs, mortars, missiles from our ammunition supply point, I took that guilt on and said, I had a hand in those deaths. How will I as a human being deal with this. And one of those ways was to write the book to get all of it out of me. That's that's healthy. It's therapy in a lot of ways. Um, you, you wrote these words and I, this actually moved me. Yeah. I, I think I wrote to you, I was like, I'm 20 pages into the book and I was really moved to, to read these words. And again, for my listeners, just a, a background of me, I I'm a Christian man as well. A person of faith, a person who served as a youth minister for years and uh, 
you know, why I, I carry every day. I believe in protecting my, my person, my family and my property. You're not going to find me out there trying to harm somebody else beyond that. Um, but this is, this is what you wrote. You said, uh, if I do not call for peace, how can I possibly justify my contribution to the suffering of others? Even in a small ancillary way, it is absolutely nothing but an unclosed wound upon my soul. Joe, th those words broke my heart for you in a lot of ways. And I'll, I'll explain why it moved me so much. I think we're all in a moment right now in this world with what's going on in the Ukraine, uh, in Russia, where there are warmongers still that would like to see larger conflicts. There's the military industrial complex. But if we're not willing to call for peace at every single moment, then it is a stain upon each of us. Um, we all have a small part to play, and there are people calling for peace, and there's people that are using fear tactics away from that. But at the same time, I also know the spirit of which you entered into conflicts, because I was there on September 11, 2001, as well, witnessing the horrors of that day and personally touched by it. So I understand the vengeful heart, and I understand wanting to make sure that individuals pay. It seems to me from reading this book, Joe, that you have suffered greatly off of guilt and guilt that not necessarily should be yours. How would you respond to that? I've had VA therapists tell me the same thing. And all I can do is take into account my contribution. I was part of a system. I won't blame people in my unit, the people in my unit were good and they did their very best. I will blame the government. I will blame human society in general for perpetuating systems of violence upon other human beings. Kids being ripped to shreds, soldiers being killed, civilians being killed. It's something that we have to get away from as a society. We have to have that eureka moment where we realize that we can no longer take part in gratuitous violence against one another. These are people's brothers and sisters. They have wants and needs and love. Some of them have hate too. But they're human beings. They're our fellow human beings. And we should have compassion upon them. It's, it's, I mean, it's a basic tenet of Buddhism, which I love so much, um, to have compassion upon all living beings is what we should strive for. And sending weapons all over the world, sending bombs all over the world, is not an act of compassion for our fellow human beings. It's quite the opposite. That's that's my basic take on war, man. Yeah, you, you talk about your uh, basic training, and I, I went out to lunch on uh, this past weekend after going to the range with an old Marine friend of mine, and your book came up um, because I was kind of wanting to know if he had similar experiences in basic training as a Marine versus army. He told me that uh, Marines go to one of the same basic trainings that army uh, go to just for the fact that it's just really solid. But I asked him about the, the concept that you wrote about of to kill without mercy, to kill without regret. <laughs> this is the one chant that stood out for me in basic training, but what does it mean? And so you wrote to be callous, to be brutal, to have no concern for the lives of the enemy. And my friend said to me, he said, you know, Greg, he goes, I, I would like to say that I disagree with that take, but it keeps us safe in order to have a take like that. And so sometimes it's regarding the thousand foot view uh, to understand that there is an enemy that would like to kill you, maybe because we're on their land in the first place. But when you're there, it's kill or be killed. How do you feel about that? I think in a survival situation, he's absolutely correct. I would like to see us not put our young men and women in those survival situations in the first place. Once you're there in that situation, you would have to kill or be killed. That, that 
there is there's absolute truth in that. And I won't take away from your friend's perspective. I don't wish to take anything from him. In my view, the promotion of killing by governments is something that in a thousand years, if the human race survives that long, we'll look back you know, upon it as we do a horse-drawn cart or some other completely antiquated device and we'll say, can you believe that we used to get around like that? Can you believe that we used to promote those values? It'll be so antiquated, it'll just be completely completely unconscionable to the people that are living a thousand years from now. I hope, I hope I'm right, but I may not be. Let's, let's get into the Iraq war. Let's get into why we were there, because I think that there might be revisionist history uh, by some individuals that tried to justify this, but it's one thing that I'll never forgive the Bush administration, Dick Cheney for personally. Um, When you look at the pipelines being built from Afghanistan straight through into Iraq, everything was running through Halliburton. And by 2003, uh, we found ourselves in an armed conflict with Iraq over claims of weapons of mass destruction being used by Saddam Hussein. But there's a problem with that. When we look back on all the evidence that was presented, when we look back on the actual history there, our government lied to us. Colin Powell got up there and lied. Rumsfeld lied. Bush lied. Cheney lied. That is, I think, one of the things that goes through my mind when I was reading your book is we're fighting a war that you went off the serve in that was not based on 9-11. It was a connection to al-Qaeda and the Taliban, but was conveniently told to remove Saddam Hussein. It was a Bush 2.0 proxy war, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom based upon Operation Desert Storm from 1990. I have friends that served in Desert Storm. And one of my friends said, you know, Greg, when the mortars start going off, there's no such thing as an atheist on base. And, uh, you know, you had that experience too, so I want to get into that. But the first part I want to talk about is what year did you make it to Iraq? Because we we entered 2003. Was it 2006 or 2005? I made it there in 2008. It was 2008. So you were towards the uh, last four years. You had a year there towards the end. Okay. So at this point, Saddam Hussein, he'd already been removed. You covered that in the book as well, um, because you're talking about the people that you're coming in contact with. But at this point, by 2008, did you know that we had been lied to about why we got into the war in the first place? Yes, I knew that we had been lied to. Um, I also knew that something was very wrong in and i'll only paraphrase here noam chomsky said that the iraq war is an example of the supreme international crime it's an unjust war of aggression it's the same thing that the people at the nuremberg trials were hanged for were put to death for now i'm not suggesting that i'm actually opposed to the death penalty in principle but I'm still waiting on that George W. Bush indictment. And I think I'll be waiting. For the rest. Yeah, I think I'll be waiting the rest of my life. But when I saw President Trump get indicted, I thought, you know, this sets an interesting precedent. Can we finally bring George W. Bush up on war crimes charges? Yeah. I mean, we ask. Where is the where is the Hague? Where is the where is the International Criminal Court? Where are they? Yeah, I'll be waiting the rest of my life, but I will wait for it. You know, and and if you look at which president got us in the least amount of conflicts, it was Donald Trump. Um, He just (laughs) said salacious things that got everybody riled up that caused them to constantly try to invalidate the presidency. Um, And I'm not uh, not sure what research you did on me, but I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. You Mm -hmm. and I, you and I identify in the same camp. Uh, We're both. Mm -hmm libertarian leaning um so i don't have a horse in that race (laughs) yeah me neither so uh, 
I want to get into uh, a little bit more about where you serve, but I think that might be best served in the second half of the show here. Uh, So we can talk about where you served and then some of these themes that run through the book that I thought were interesting. I really want to get your perspective on uh, from your life. Everybody, I'd like you to go, uh, if you go to the Merrick Out Loud webpage to my page, Maybe that's where you're listening to this right now. The Broken Mirror of Memory. There's a link down below. You can click on it. You can order this book directly at that link. Uh, you can also follow Joe Soul at Joe underscore Soul, S-O-E-L. Joe, just the way you imagine, J-O-E. Uh, we're going to talk more with them and get deeper into this book in just a few moments. But before we do that, we got to hear from our sponsors. As always, the Genesis HOCL Fogger helps remove bacteria, viruses, and mold from your room. They have the atomizer. Plug it in, set it, and forget it. What's even better, you can go to www.genesisfogger.com backslash out loud and get a discount just for listening to my show. How cool is that? All right, everybody, we'll be right back in just a few moments. You're listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden, my special guest, Joe Soul, here on the America Out Loud Network. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Bold American second half of the show. We are with the author of The Broken Mirror of Memory, Iraq and Other Tales, Joe Soul, talking about his time in 2008 spent in the army and stationed in Iraq. And I want to read to the audience uh, what a commander wrote to him as part of a memorandum of reference that stated, Specialist Soul served as an assigned soldier on the Visitor Control Operations Section, VCC, on multiple occasions for over nine months. His duties were to provide force protection for fellow soldiers at the supply point and to advise and assist local Iraqi government contractors' daily operations at the supply point. Specialist Soul's team oversaw the successful completion of multiple government contracting projects, totaling more than $250,000 in the operations area. All right. So that is the write-up that the Army would say. Tell me about your daily uh, routine of meeting the people of Iraq and having them work on this uh, contract that the government had. Tell me about what you had to do each day to bring people to that site? We would go out early in the morning and we would go to the visitor control center in a five-ton truck. We would meet the workers, say good morning, salamu alaikum, and they would be badged by a clerical soldier, had um, ID badges that said, hey, this guy's been served, he's good to be on the base, it's all fine. And we would take our team, probably 15, 20 workers, somewhere in between there. And we would drive them back to the ammunition supply point. They would then work on various projects from building a large tent for us that was more like a building almost. It was a huge tent that we would use for the reclamation of ammunition. And we then moved to the back of the supply point where we started building up more what we call ammunition pads, large flattened concrete areas that had 
what are called HESCO barriers around them with sandbags on top for the storage of more ammunition. I believe we expanded the size of the ASP by about half during my tour. Okay. And then we would escort them at the end of the workday, usually eight to 12 hours, it depended. And then we would take them back to the visitor control center and they would be released from the base. These were these were workers that were paid. How much I don't know. I would imagine having worked manual labor most of my life, that it was not a lot of money, especially comparably speaking. Especially but, if your entire contract was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to build something on a military grade. My guess is they weren't paid that much when it comes into everything that probably had to go into supplies and making sure that that happened. You know, that's probably correct. Right. So during that time, um, let's just paint the picture for a person who's not in Iraq. Uh, you are in full military getup. Uh, your military issued rifle is on your person as you're uh, bringing these people to the base from the visitor control center and over. And you have a team of other people that also are heavily armed when you go to pick up all these people. Is that correct? That's correct. Generally, the magazines were not in the weapons at a certain point that changed and the magazines went into the weapons, but they were not on red condition. They were not locked and loaded. Okay. So you guys were not really combat uh, ready, so to speak, for an immediate crisis, but you were within an arm's length of being ready. We were, we were within a hammer pullback of being ready. Oh, I, I know exactly what you mean. Did that this weekend. All right. Um, so if you're an Iraqi individual, this could look pretty threatening, or you might look like, oh, well, what choice do I have? They're occupying my country. They have force. I do not. I might as well go to work. Is that a fair assessment? I would say so. I would. Yes, I would say so. Um, it was not entirely. I mean, that's not entirely accurate. They were, you know, there were jokes told. Okay. We got to know these people, but yeah, they had to go along <laughs> right. because we were the ones with the guns. And despite the fact that they came along, despite the fact that they were paid to do a job and you met some pretty amazing people that were Iraqis while you were there. And I know you have another book conversations with Ali reflections of a soldier that's available on Amazon and other places where you want to buy books. Um, is that not available? It is no longer available. Conversations oh. with Ali is now part of a broken mirror of memory. It's ah, okay. One standalone book. Yes. Okay. One standalone book. I, I, I see. And I was going to say, we have the Ali stuff in the book. I was wondering if there was additional content. So everything now is in the broken mirror of memory. So everything. retract my statement from that, everybody. Uh, you get buy one book and you get both books all in one. That's awesome. All right. So, but you met Ali and you're having lunch with him. You had uh, these Iraqis that are providing you food, sharing in your meals. And you said that that was some of your favorite memories and moments in Iraq was spending time with the Iraqi people over a meal and getting to eat their food. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. It was the ultimate humanizing experience for me as a person who had righteous anger over 9-11, who is beginning to question the war before I got there, when I got there, when I met the Iraqi people, when I saw the people that in basic training the army had called Haji, when I met Haji, I found that I had no conflict with him whatsoever on a person-to-person -person level. They were wonderful people, very kind. They were farmers, sheep herders. Uh, my friend Ali was actually a teacher, and what he told me was he lost his job during Paul Bremer's debathification of Iraq because every public servant had to be a member of the Bath Party. He was then basically reduced to working for the Americans. He was one of the few that spoke English, so for lack of a better term, he was our translator for the other workers. I would say, Ali Ta'al which means Ali, come here. I need you to tell these guys this. And he would relay 
all the messages, he would relay the jokes. And I always enjoyed watching them laugh. Um, it was important to give them time to pray. And we saw to that. We were as kind as possible, as kind as you could be when you're part of an occupying army that is having local nationals build up your capacity to occupy their country. We were as kind as we could be. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud that I learned the real meaning of compassion in the middle of a war zone. And while no, I was not in the infantry, not in the front line, so to speak, not going on a patrol in downtown Baghdad, there were casualties. And there's something that I'll never forget. There were mortar attacks that were very close and there are things I'll never forget. But the Iraqi people, they made the biggest impression upon me as simply being themselves, simply being God-fearing people making the best out of a bad situation and seeing that we, the guards, were really just scared kids. And even one of the old men even took us under his wing. He would bring us Samoon, Iraqi flatbread, and a drink I can't remember the name of, but I would give my right hand to find some. It's it's an orange soda with pulp in it. Okay. It's carbonated, and it is the most delicious thing in the world. I would fly to the Middle East right now if I could, you know, buy some of that. That's that's awesome. I mean, so this is uh this is what I kind of liked about your book. I liked the fact that um your book reminds me a little bit of one of my favorite writers, uh Jack Kerouac. And oh. Jack's on the road where he just kind of tells stories that are kind of a little bit more random, a little bit kind of looking at, I could see where you were likely inspired in part by somebody like Jack. Is, is that a fair, um, is that a fair assessment of me? Is, is, are you familiar with his work? I'm guessing by your, uh, <laughs> I'm correct. That's, that's, um, that's a fair assessment. Uh, definitely inspired by the beatnik writers. Yep. Definitely inspired by um, the likes of Kurt Vonnegut, but certainly, certainly the beatnik poets and the beatnik writers. And that's kind of what I caught from your book. So if people pick this book up, they should know that it's not going to be a straight story all the way through. You get involved in poetry that you wrote while you were in Iraq, after Iraq. Um, and there's actually a, a, my favorite poem that you have. You actually have it as part of a story. And then you go back in your poetry's time and you just highlight it. Uh, but I'm going to read it here for people because it reminds me of an uh, old didactic poem. Uh, the petals on the faces of the crowd, um, raindrops on a long black bow, uh, was one of my favorite poems I read when I was in college. But this one is along that same type of uh, writing, maybe not quite as um, wordful selected, but it, it really hit me. And so I'm certain you, there are more eloquent. Yeah. Yeah, I'm certain there are more eloquent authors out there than me. <laughs> yeah, and that that's okay because you said all that you need to say in this moment. It's kind of this one reminds me of the old um what was it? Uh used uh baby shoes or uh baby shoes for sale, never used. <laughs> and how like that was the poem and that just hit you. And this is along those lines. Let me instead of keep talking about, it, let me to read it to my audience. So you wrote this one about Iraq. Sometimes it rains metal here. We laughed and played in the rain like children. That sums it up really well. Um, you know, I, I imagine that's a lot of the mortar attack that night that you talk about that is part of the broken mirror of memory. It's part of PTSD for you losing people that night on base your first week while you were there. But I also know that that means that during that time, you had fun with your fellow comrades and soldiers that you were there with, um, that there were laughter, there was playing, even amidst something that was horrifying and something that you carry with you. Is that a fair assessment of those words? Am I reading into that properly? That's a very fair assessment of those words. Sometimes it rains metal here. 
We laughed and pr- played in the rain like children. That's that's exactly what we did. And then there's this other part. You, you talk about you talk about Haji's and during your training being rewarded for yelling things like die Haji MFR. Um, I don't curse on my show, so that's why I'm selectively editing your words. Um, <laughs> but then in your book, when you're talking about the after action report, you write about Muslims are not monsters or terrorists. The number of terrorists is minimal considering the world's 1 billion Muslims. Some of the younger Iraqis we worked with were very secular. And so when I read that, I couldn't help but think about what's going on in France and the fear campaign right now against Muslims once again, uh, when we know that it's not the large majority of individuals that choose terrorism and fear. And so I wanted you to uh, juxtapose your training uh, of being taught to be fearful, uh, maybe even racist towards uh, a classification of people versus what you met once you were there. What I met once I was there was the antithesis of that. It was suddenly, here's a human being. Deal with him fairly or not. It's your choice, but this is a human being. And he is not Haji. He is not he is not necessarily the enemy. Now we didn't know if there were, you know, spies or or infiltrators in the work detail on any given day. We were always kind of, I mean, at least myself, I always wondered about that. Can I really trust this guy? There was always a level of mistrust and that created a barrier that it took me until last year when I visited the masjid and sat there and listened to the imam and listened to the Muslim worshipers after their services where I realized that, yes, in that moment, in the time that I was in Iraq, I had to have that mistrust to survive. It was healthy. Here, it's no longer necessarily healthy. Here, it creates problems. Here, it creates anger. And I was able to remove that anger from my life, that mistrust from my life, by simply visiting the masjid. And I would encourage any veteran listening to this podcast who has a similar fear of Muslims, um, a similar, I'm not quite sure how to put it. You hold on to that part. You hold on to that mistrust. Just go visit the masjid, talk to the imam, learn, listen, and realize that these are your fellow human beings. You know, Ron Paul often talks about the unintended consequences of blowback and the occupation of foreign lands. And when he was running for president in 2008, he would often tell everybody, you know, they don't hate us because we're American. They hate us because we're occupying their land and telling them that they need to have democracy and freedom when they already have a country where they have their own laws, they have their own faith, they have their own beliefs. And how would we feel if another country showed up on our doorstep and was occupying one of our cities and said, Oh, we're going to fix this for you. Your constitution's flawed, but we're going to tell you that we have a better system for you. Um, And so I think that we need the racism. We need the prejudice to make that war system work. And right now in the Ukraine, we heard Vladimir Putin talk about the fact that there are Nazis in the Ukraine. And we've heard the Ukraine talk about how this is a completely unprovoked attack. We have Russia saying, well, some of these territories are ours. Meanwhile, the United States is funding billions upon billions of dollars in war machine weaponry involving NATO uh, allies in order to help the Ukraine fight against Russia. The truth is likely somewhere in the middle. Uh, I went to the Rage Against the War Machine rally. I spoke with Jill Stein. I I spoke with uh, Chris Hedges and a bunch of other anti-war advocates that would like to see the war in Russia and Ukraine stop and have each other respect each other's uh, sovereign borders. But when you say that in this country, 
I've been painted as a Russian sympathist that I want to see Russia win, despite me saying, no, I want Russia to maintain their borders. Ukraine gets everything that they've had. But we paint this, this photo of fear and racism and divide, and it's not helping us at all. So my question for you is this. You want to be a more peaceful person. You want to see wars because we all have this fabric of being human and this right to life on this earth. How do we have a conversation about peace when people say, yeah, but if we do that, these individuals will kill off this part of society? How do we deal with <laughs> this carte blanche statement of if we don't kill them, they're going to kill us? Sometimes, sometimes it's right. If we don't kill them, they're going to kill us. I mean, that can be a true statement. Certainly. My position, my firm belief, is that as a human species, we have to get away from war. I am opposed to any war in any place for any reason. And I will die on that hill. You can't have that conversation in our current climate, in our current culture. You can't have that conversation outside of alternative media sources. You can have military analysts say, we need to send this many weapons or this many bombs, or we have to send this much equipment or that much equipment, but no one stops and says, maybe we shouldn't be funding killing. Maybe we shouldn't be supporting killing. Maybe we should have peace. I haven't heard a single voice on, on the mainstream media, neither in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq or in the response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I haven't heard a single voice say, maybe we should have peace. Maybe instead of sending weapons, we should send food and medical supplies to the Ukrainians who are suffering. I feel great sympathy for them as fellow human beings. I feel sorry for the Russian draftees who are being sent to Ukraine because they don't want to be there in the first place, at least the draftees, I would assume. They're human beings suffering because Vladimir Putin wants to take more territory. They're human beings suffering. And that is a great crime, in my opinion. Certainly, Putin is a war criminal. Certainly. Mm -hmm. I but I believe George W. Bush is a war criminal as well. But you can't have that discussion in our mainstream media climate. You can't have it because uh, I've always thought that the, the media just simply states whatever the mainstream military complex and politics want them to state. I think that's pretty, pretty obvious much. to me at this point. Pretty much. That's pretty much what's happening. And let me tell you, the defense contractors are making a lot of money replenishing those weapons. Yes, they are. Let's get into something controversial here. Um, because I have this philosophy in life. I always reserve the right to be wrong about something. Um, I don't feel that anything that I say is ever the absolute truth that I have the authority to make statements. And your book gave me some thoughts about don't ask, don't tell. And you write about it early on in the book. And it's funny because when you wrote about it, uh, my, <laughs> I forget what page it was on, but you talk about when you first enlisted, you had to sign this document for don't ask, don't tell. And basically, if you were to come out later on and say that you were gay or bisexual, that you'd be gone. And some people use that in order to get out of the military once things were kind of ramping up and the soldiers would turn their backs on those individuals when they were being walked out and it was considered dishonorable. Later on, when you wrote that, my first thought, and you know, I just it's an interesting thing because you didn't address it earlier in the book. Uh, my first thought was, huh, is Joe gay or bisexual? That was my first thought when I read that because I was like, that's a really interesting detail to put in there. And then later in the book, you write about don't ask, don't tell. And the fact that you wrote an op-ed about it that ran uh, in the papers. I'm curious when you write a don't ask a slap to Patriots and it gets run in the papers, how did the military uh, brothers in arms and sisters in arms respond to that? 
they were very supportive. Um, there were several people chuckling. There was a standard joke among my friends in Iraq. Um, as a, as a, as a bisexual man, they said, get back in the closet Skittles. That's what they would always say to me. <laughs> get back in the closet Skittles. It was a, it was an open secret. So, and, yeah. So I, I guess here's the thing. Like I, I personally, like my personal beliefs are hey, love who you love. Um, we shouldn't have any hatred for people making that decision uh, in their life because it's not a decision. It's who they literally are attracted to and love. It's not something that is, uh, it's just as I find my wife attractive. Another man may find a man attractive or a woman may find a woman attractive. I have no problem with that. I'm curious about the culture of sexuality. And this is where it might get controversial here. Why is sexuality necessary, heterosexual or homosexual, in the barracks? Um, because I was one of those individuals back then, like, don't ask, don't tell. Sure, if it makes people uncomfortable, uh, I think it's their own problem. But at the same time, why does sexuality matter in a war zone? So I was hopeful you could answer that for me. You, I was hoping you'd get that into the book and you didn't. Mm. Well, it matters to me because I'm here, I exist, and I'd like to live my life openly and honestly with my fellow human beings. That's why, to me, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was an unjust policy, and I was thrilled, absolutely thrilled to see it gone. I think that having that policy undermined our readiness. I think it undermined so much about the military and like, like how, I said, I'm how, to yeah, how so like in in what way would that undermine like i get to it's like it's who i am uh so right. i understand that but like specifically i i saw you wrote that but I, that's what i was kind of curious about like what ways does it undermine i haven't been in the barracks i haven't been in training so in what way does that harm that relationship or the trust between soldiers um, in order to have a, a stronger unit? To me, in my view, and others can feel free to disagree with anything I've said, but um, especially this, I, I would suppose. To me, it creates an added stressor on the soldier that is gay, bisexual, lesbian, transgender, that you're there serving you really want to serve. You really want to be there. You want to help your country. You want to be part of something greater than yourself. And then you're told, as long as you hide who you are, as long as you don't say anything, okay. as long as your relationship is not known, if you are married, if you are partnered, and you're killed in combat, your partner will not receive that flag, will not be recognized, will not be told on behalf of a grateful nation here is this flag, which is the standard at military funerals. And I found that to be a grave injustice because I agree with you a hundred percent there. Absolutely. And I think that it undermined the morale of those soldiers and therefore would affect combat effectiveness. If we're concerned with combat effectiveness, which as a peace activist, I'm not too concerned with combat effectiveness, obviously, but if I have to frame it in a mainstream media argument of combat readiness and rah, rah, sort of macho you want all your soldiers to be focused you don't want them to be distracted by well i have to hide my partner this week or i have to lie about my partner's pronouns consistently and i can't get it wrong and i always have to be worried that hey they might be coming for me if i say the wrong thing Hmm. that makes sense i mean that's a perspective i wasn't thinking of you know when you're having stories and sharing about things back home uh, having to watch your language and not be authentically who you are. I can completely understand that. Um, that's why I wanted to ask the question because sure. I haven't been in that situation. Um, and for me, I was just thinking, well, why has it got to be about sexuality? Because honestly, if I'm going to war, I don't want to be thinking about sexuality. I want to be thinking about combat readiness and how to survive. But that ignores the fact that there's plenty of downtime hours where conversations need to exist and relationships between uh, people need to be made to keep each other safe. And so I, I completely get that. And when you wrote in your book about, you know, if you were married back home, your husband couldn't have uh, a flag uh, or a partner couldn't have a flag if you were killed. 
yeah, that that that's a problem. Uh, that's an absolute problem. So I'm I'm glad that you took the time to to explain that not only in the book for people that are reading it, but took the time to answer that with me as well. Sure. Uh, two other places I want to go uh, before we wrap up today. Uh, I don't want to get into Red River 44 um, because I want to save that for people that read your book. But it was something that uh, happened uh, nearby. And that's the part that was really kind of uh, confusing to me. So these seven uh, individuals that lost their life in the uh, CH-47 crash, did you witness the crash? Was it something that happened close by? Can you give me a little bit more perspective? Because in the book, I wasn't really too sure. What about this incident left such an indelible mark on your heart and on your mind? Red River 44 crashed near Abadar Khalil Air Base. We were... I'm not sure if we were invited or if our first sergeant said, we're going to this because he felt it was important. What he said was, you'll remember this for the rest of your life. And we went to their dignified transfer ceremony where their transfer cases were tra- were exchanged between the trucks carrying them and a large cargo plane to be brought home. And um, it was... It is one of the defining moments of my life. Yeah, that's where you talk about holding your salute in the desert um, for what seemed like an eternity to honor these uh, these seven men as they were loaded in in the cases. To oh, probably, still, you know, I'll just stand there saluting on this tarmac in the middle of the night for the rest of my life. I'm still there. I'm still there saluting. I'm still there watching them go by. I will never not be in that moment. Is that because you thought that that could be you? Absolutely. I, I thought it could be me. I, I considered the loss of their lives as a mark upon my very soul, where I now have to live my life in a way that gives them, those soldiers, and all the fallen, I have to make their sacrifice, their loss, worth it. I have to go out and do my very best to make their sacrifice worth something. And it is the cause of all my striving, and it is the cause of all my work, and it's the reason why I wake up in the morning to do something that would honor them, that would make them proud, that would make them happy, that could justify their sacrifice. That is the only thing that kept me going through the darkest moments of my life and continues to motivate me today. There's there's no way to put it into eloquent enough words or put it in proper terminology, but once you were there, once you said, there they are. You were convicted. And there was no other way to go forward but to honor them with your very being. And so you you took it upon yourself to meet with, I know, one of the fathers, uh, one of the Gold Star dads that lost his son. Is that correct? I spoke with him on the phone, yes. Yep. And uh, he told you. That, you know, the best way to honor his son is to to live your life, that that's what his son would want for you, correct? That is correct. That is what he told me. I mean, when I read that, there's a couple of things that kind of stood out to me. The first part was the care and the love that that father had so much for his son was love that he was bestowing upon you as well. Because that same answer, I was imagining to myself him saying to his son, let this go and live your life. Don't get stuck in that moment. And so when you shared, you know, it's a moment that I'm still stuck on. I'm still on that tarmac. Or when I read earlier uh, in, in part one about this moral dilemma that you find yourself in. In a lot of ways, you are uh, living the the PTSD life of so many sh- soldiers that come back 
to this country. Um, and you've dealt with the VA. I'm currently dealing with the VA with my father's care. Uh, my father served during Vietnam and he now has Alzheimer's. And so I have that, you know, that I've seen what type of care is available there through uh, my mother helping him out. And I know that the VA is a frustrating process as well. But I think what's really interesting about your book, if people purchase it, the, the perspective that I think that they're going to get on this, and I, I really think everybody's going to get something a little bit different because it's complex little onion peels of layers, that you already did a really good job of not leaving any of those men behind or any of those experiences behind for those that served in our military from 2003 to 2011 in that area. Like your book is a, a really nice way to wrap that up in a tale from a broken man. And I hope you don't mind me calling you a broken man, but we're all broken people. And reading oh. that, that's what I got from it. I was like, here's a broken person, just like me, just like anybody else, but really memorializing the experience for all. I want to ask you, what will it take for you to forgive yourself enough to let go just a little bit and move on in a way that honors those men, honors the service, but in a way that is kind to you? That is something that I'm working, and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm working with a therapist on. And I don't know what it'll take. I truly don't know. There are days when I get up and I get by, and there are days when I get up and I don't get up. And I don't know what that's going to take. I suppose time. It has changed over time. The wounds have scabbed over, so to speak. And what was once a sharp pain is now a dull ache. But people talk about grief as if it's some sort of process that has a definitive end. You're going to go through these stages. And then, oh, you're good. So I don't view grief like that. I think grief is a lifelong process. It's not something that you magically get over. And what I'm working on with my therapist is reframing that into, yes, they died. Yes, I am alive. And the only thing that I can do is move forward and put one boot in front of the other. And while I'm doing that, I don't need to beat myself up. That's something I'm still internalizing through meditation, through therapy sessions, through learning. And it's going to take a lifetime of work. And I'm willing to put in that work in honor of the fallen to be able to forgive myself. That call with the Gold Star Father, uh, Mr. Thompson, was very, very helpful to me. And I'm eternally grateful to him. I have to make a pilgrimage down to visit him and visit the gravesite of Red River 44. They're buried together. But he helped me a great deal in being able to put it down. And I say in the book, I put it down, but I put it in the corner of my office. Right. It's still it's still sitting right there. It's right next to me. And the work to forgive myself will take a lifetime. And I don't know any other way to deal with it, but to just put one boot in front of the other and be as nice to myself as I can. Be kind to yourself. It's interesting that I got that reminder this morning. Because talking about Iraq is hard. Yeah, I can imagine. And that's why I even said, I don't know, I want to go to the 44th um, comment, because I know that that is a, a source of pain and suffering for you. But pain and suffering can be so beneficial it can. to the expanding of understanding. So I don't mind going there at all. Um, and the reason why I said kindness, be kind to yourself, 
is as I was reading through the book, some that I picked up on is you have a, a, a want to beat yourself up over the, that, which you cannot control. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may be a beautiful thing in some respects from the standpoint of, I believe that I was getting a heartfelt, honest account from your perspective, but then at some point in time, I'm going, hmm, when can he put some of this in the corner a little bit for himself and help himself? And I think that that's going to be difficult for you because we're still surrounded by a society at war. And you even end in your acknowledgments. You said to President Joe Biden, for your shameful withdrawal from Afghanistan, you and every president who oversaw the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan should go down to Section 60 at Arlington National Cemetery and beg the forgiveness of the honored dead. You should in good conscience await their response until it is given. At the very least, you could take proper care of the survivors, but I won't hold my breath for any of it. That's just beautifully stated. Watching the withdrawal from Afghanistan, watching the planes, watching all the weapons left behind that are now likely being moved to other areas where they will take innocent lives. It's pretty well stated. And I think that's why it's going to be tough for you and so many other soldiers to move on because the war machine is not disappearing. No, it's very powerful. It's not going anywhere. And I really do mean that the presidents who oversaw it, the Congress people that voted for it, the bureaucrats who ran it, who pushed for it, who sent young men and women off to die, they should go stand there at Section 60. They should wait until they are relieved by the honored dead. I truly believe that with every fiber of my being, and I know it'll never happen, but if there was a just world, if we lived in a just world, they would stand there at Section 60 and await the reply to say, I did it for my country. You're relieved. You may go home. They should stand there and they should wait until the honored dead give their response. They should be on their knees asking forgiveness, but they won't be. And that is the great problem with our society, isn't it? We have powerful people who can make decisions, whether intentional or not, whether malevolent or not, and send young men and women off to die. We're sending human beings off to die and to kill other human beings. And there's something profoundly, profoundly wrong with that on a base level that you can feel in your soul. You can feel it deep down when you really get to it, when you get away from all the rhetoric of... Turn it all the glass and nuke it, which I've heard so many people say. <laughs> when you really get down to it, even those folks, even those people, they know deep down in their hearts that taking human life, that causing harm is not beneficial. They feel it in their very soul. And we need a movement that says, no more of this. It's time to get it's time to get together as a species. <laughs> It's time to get off the planet and go to Mars. You know, it's time to do things that benefit all of humanity. Let's start with feeding everybody or housing everybody (laughs) or making sure everyone has clean water. Let's start with basics of human kindness that we would extend to any neighbor that has a problem. Isn't that amazing? We were able to get vaccines to almost every area of the entire world within six months. We still were not able to feed the world's hungry. It's fascinating. It's fascinating, the priorities of humans. It's all about priorities, man. It's all about priorities. And when bombs are our priorities over bags of rice, we're going to have a bad time. Just like South Park said, if you pizza when you should have French fried, you're going to have a bad time, bro. (laughs) And we keep pizzaing when we should be French frying. We're doing the wrong thing. And that's, (laughs) I can't put it more plainly than that. Well, Joe, um, it's been a pleasure to bring you onto the show today for my listening audience. Uh, your book, The Broken Mirror of Memory, Iraq and Other Tales, it's available uh, everywhere you can find books. Uh, you can type that in Joseph Soul, S-O-E-L, um, as well as right here on the AmericaOutloud.com page. I will have the link right below. Just click on that and you can help support. Go purchase the book. I, I really... 
uh, do think that it's an important read for individuals to reflect on their own stances on war. It's not a book that is going to uh, give you flashy combat or any of that type of stuff. It's simply a reflection on what it's like to enlist in the army, what it's like to have served during this experience and allow you to make up your mind. And Joe does a really good job of even telling everybody, like, I'm not sure I got all the facts right, but this is how I remember it. And it's no disrespect to anybody I served with. And so, uh, Joe, I hope that people will uh, join you on that journey and and reach out to you. Is there any, uh, I guess, at Joe Soul 2 is your Twitter, at Joe Soul 2. Um, and so uh, they can reach out to you right there um, and join a conversation with you. I'm sure you'd love to hear from them. Yes, I would love to hear from anyone who reads the book. I hope that I hope everyone listening goes out and buy the, buys the book because it writing it was so personal to me. It took me 10 plus years to write this. I poured my very soul into it, whether you agree with me or not. It's my perspective. It's it's my life's work. This book is it was for so many years. My very reason for survival was writing this book. And you can get it on Amazon, The Broken Mirror of Memory by Joseph Soul, S-O-E-L. Um, I would be honored and humbled if you would purchase the book. And you can contact me and tell me what you think. I will be happy to speak with anyone, whether you agree with me, whether you hate me, whether you love me. I would be happy to hear from anyone who has read the book and wants to give me their honest perspective. That's awesome. Well, Joe, I appreciate you being on the show here. Um, you know, let's catch up again. Let me know what you have going on in the future. Uh, if we have different parts, we can talk about military wise, bring you back onto the show and uh, get some perspectives uh, from you. Thank you for your service. Uh, my best of luck uh, to you prayers and love sent your way in order to continue your own healing on your journey with your therapist, as well as uh, successes in the future that you continue to grow, maybe not leaving things behind, but putting things into the proper box and perspective to live a healthy and happy life moving forward, Joe. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. The pleasure is mine and may there be love and light for everyone listening. All right, everybody, we hope that we honored your time well here today. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with yet another show here on America Emboldened with Greg Bolden. And today, my special guest, Joe Soul, on the America Out Loud Network. Be bold, America. Uh-huh.